there was just about nothing in that reading that was comfortable, um, <laughs> right? This is one of those passages where you, you would never choose to go here, except that we're committed to taking seriously the whole counsel of God, and we're just walking through the book of Matthew, if you're joining us for the first time, and we're studying what's often called the Sermon on the Mount, and the topic of focus today, wonderfully, is the topic of sex. And so let's take a look, but first, we got to pray. Let's ask for God's help. Let's pray. Jesus, we're praying and asking that you would give us what we don't have by our own power, the ability to understand the mind and the heart of God. We cannot unpack this word in a way that's not only uh, truth-giving, but also soul-satisfying apart from the help of your Holy Spirit. So come now and bless us and help us and do this for the change and transformation of our lives, but also for your glory. Receive praises from us even as we learn together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. He didn't take the side door or the back door, you know. That first Palm Sunday, Jesus rode right down the middle, probably flanked by a lot of Jewish pilgrims coming back to their capital city, Jerusalem, for the Passover feast. He also didn't come on foot. He could have. He came riding on a donkey. You say, what's the big deal? Well, Jesus knew exactly what the big deal was. You see, donkeys in the ancient world were symbols of royalty. Only kings and rulers would ride on donkeys. It was a sign of legitimate authority, you see, because if you were insecure, if you were having to wield power or grasp for power, the leader of a coup, so to speak, you would come in on a war horse. You would come in with special braggadocio or ostentatious displays of might, wouldn't you? You would come rolling in on a tank. But true leaders don't do that, do they? They come in, in something slow, plotting, very secure, uh, shaped by comfort, something like a limo. You see, donkeys were ancient limousines. And this is what Jesus rode in, his limousine, as it were. I had to. I actually have a couple more of those. I'm not going to use them. And we might not get the symbolism, but don't you miss it that God, the people around him did not miss it. Why do you think it was that without any external cues, just upon seeing Jesus on a donkey, the people erupt in royal praise, not just a clap of the hands. They start to cite scripture, Old Testament prophecies. They start to say Hosanna to the king. Blessed be the son of David. David being the truest and greatest kings in all of Israel's history. They saw the royal sign, they saw the royal son, and they praised him for it. Of course, if you were to flip through the different tellings of the story of Palm Sunday, you would know that these passages also describe Jesus riding on this donkey as humble. But you see, he wasn't being humble because he was on a donkey. He was humble because he was riding a donkey to his death. This is Jesus, the king, riding 
to a cross. What does that have to do with sex? Wait and see. We're going to take a look at this passage under three simple headers, three points. First of all, the spirituality of sex. Explain what that means. Secondly, secondly, the selfishness of lust. And thirdly, the servanthood of the king. See, we're getting there. The spirituality of sex, the selfishness of lust, and the servanthood of the king. Jesus, of course, is right in the middle of the Sermon of the Mount. We've been studying this literally paragraph by paragraph so far. And he lands on this brief word about the topic of adultery. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I don't want to start off by addressing this question of what the nature of adultery is. What's so bad about adultery? You see, later on, Jesus is going to build his case about lust based upon an accepted view that adultery is a bad thing. And you might even share that view, but I don't know if you've ever thought about what exactly is it that makes adultery so bad. And it's this, if we can unpack this a little bit. It's the spirituality of sex. Sex isn't just a physical act. This is what the Bible tells us. This is what we even, I think, know by personal experience. We try to reduce it to being a merely physical act, a biological phenomenon. But in fact, there is a, a mystical bond, if we could call it that, a mystical bond that is forged between two sexual partners. Just among friends or in different movies, we like to poke fun at the person that gets overly attached after a hookup, that awkward moment in the morning about where this relationship is going to go. The Bible would say that attached person ain't so crazy after all. Phil Yancey, who's a Christian writer, and he's done some great thinking on the topic of sex, writes this. Sex may engage our bodies, but unlike such bodily functions as excretion, sneezing, and burping, sex also touches our souls as tenderly and as precariously as they can be touched. Sex almost gives us, in a sense, a portal to the most vulnerable parts of our humanity. Jesus actually reminds us of the unmistakably spiritual dimension of sex in this passage when he turns our attention to what's actually in our hearts. He says that there. What's in your heart? Sex always involves the deepest part of your personhood. You know, we actually understand this, don't we? when we consider the way in which we treat different forms of sexual abuse and violation. We, we actually have all come to agree as a society, maybe not always thinking about it, but we've come to an agreement that there is, there is something especially evil, something especially consequential about sexual assault or rape or molestation. We know, and some of you, oh my goodness, you know, that far more than the physical body gets hurt in those instances. 
The Bible says this is understandable because sex is unusually powerful, more than biological, even, dare we say, spiritual. You see, people sort of assume these days, don't they, that the Bible is sort of anti-sex. And we know why that's the case. It's because a lot of corners of the church over history and over time has actually positioned itself as the enemy of sex. Nothing could be further from the truth. Well, is Jesus here as he's talking about adultery and sex and lust? Is he dogging sex itself? The answer is no, although you could arrive at a conclusion if you were just sort of listening to the reading, right? I mean, maybe you just thought, sort of thought that, you know, this passage is all about finding anyone sexually attractive means you're going to go to hell. Is that sort of shorthand for what Jesus is saying? Do you know that there is no higher view of sex than that which is found in the Bible? This view that God was the one that created it, that God blesses it, that God gives it to humankind as a gift. In fact, you find throughout the Bible places like in Song of Solomon. Have you ever read Song of Songs? Some of you, your homework, well, I better be careful here. <laughs> Some of you, you really need to read it. You need to understand that so it, we have these poetic descriptions of foreplay and intercourse found in this wonderful poetical book. In the book of Proverbs, a book of wisdom, there we find a son that is counseled by his father to be enraptured by his wife's breasts. Now, you know, I mean, this is the stuff that you're, some of you really uncomfortable hearing your pastor talk about, Right? But this is, right there in the Bible, the glory of sexual love. You see, God, yes, hates sexual sin, not because he hates sex, but because he loves it. Because he knows and sees the power that he has invested in it, the spirituality, the soul-touching nature of sex. And he hates the damage that occurs when we misuse it. Understand this. Sex was always meant to be a part of a whole, a total giving of oneself, body and soul, in covenanted, committed, promised relationship. In fact, you might say that to give my body but to withhold my heart, to withhold my possessions, to withhold my freedom, my decision-making power, my bank account, my future, my security, is abject and nearly abusive self-centeredness. To give one little piece of me and to say the rest of it is off-limits, part of my personal independence and freedom. Or to put it more positively, the way that the Bible talks about sex is that it is not only supposed to be enacted and enjoyed only in the context of firm, public, promised relationship, namely that in the covenant of marriage, but that it is most fully enjoyed in that context 
as well. You see, sex is an enacted promise, body and soul. It's a pledge of the heart to a person. And so to give yourself sexually and not to give yourself emotionally or financially or futurely to a person is essentially to commit perjury, to lie to the person. Again, Phil Yancey writes this, marriage provides the security that we need to experience sex without restraint, apart from guilt, danger, or deceit. Teenagers worry that they will miss out on something if they heed the Bible's warnings against premarital sex. Actually, the warnings are there to keep them from missing out on something. Fidelity sets a boundary in which sex can run free. C.S. Lewis also comments along these lines as to God's design of, of sex in his great, wonderful book, Mere Christianity. He writes this, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union that were intended to go along with it and make it a total union. The Christian attitude, he writes, does not mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than about the pleasure of eating. But it means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. And maybe that last image is appropriate here. Sex, apart from a covenant commitment of your whole life, is to take a person's body and soul to chew them and to spit them out again. It's why adultery is one of the worst forms of betrayal. Because it's one of the worst of all kinds of lies. It's actually taking a person and trampling upon what they have risked in them giving themselves to you in utter vulnerability, the vulnerability of the human heart and soul. I've put myself out there all the way, and now you've just run away with a piece of me. You see, adultery is as insidious as I think we instinctually know it is, but maybe now with a biblically informed understanding can affirm it is, because of the power of sex and the glory of sex and the spirituality of sex. So before we move on really, really quickly, understand that when you get into trouble sexually, it's not because, according to the Bible, according to Jesus, it's not because you have too high a view of sex. It's because your view of sex isn't high enough. It's because you haven't treated it like the precious treasure that it actually is. Secondly, if you are engaged in an adulterous relationship today, or if you are considering one, I plead with you to stop. Thirdly, even if you're not, Jesus tells us that there are tons of ways that this is relevant to all of us because he tells us not only about the spirituality of sex, the power of sex, but also the selfishness 
of lust as it relates to this definition of sex and adultery. Let's take a look. The selfishness of lust. Jesus says in verse 27, again, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He's, of course, referring to the seventh of the Ten Commandments. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, we saw this last week, whenever Jesus says, you have heard it said, what he is doing is he's signaling that he's about to correct some popular notion, some popular but incorrect notion or view of a given topic, in this case, sex and sexuality. And what Jesus is challenging is all the ways in which we try to make this sex commandment or adultery commandment not being about me. Adultery? Well, I'm not married, so, well, you know, and neither was she, so that was easy. All right, any, got anything else? Maybe the Eighth Commandment? Or, come on, we were just fooling around a little bit. You know, it, it, we didn't go all the way. I mean, how far is too far anyway? Or, things aren't perfect in my marriage, but I've never done that, and so I guess we're fine, right? All the ways in which we try to make this command sort of spin right around us and move on past us. Jesus won't less let us off the hook that easily. Here's what he's saying. Verse 29. Verse 28, excuse me. You shall not commit adultery, verse 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Of course, this applies to women with respect to their relationship with men as well. Jesus is saying, sure, you haven't slept with them with your body, but have you slept with them in your heart, in your minds, in your thoughts, in your motives, in your desires? Just like we saw last week in the case of the command against murder, seeing that it included angry thoughts and insulting words. So here we're seeing today that the command against adultery includes the lustful look and imagination. But understand what Jesus is saying here. There are a lot of words in the ancient Greek for sexual desire, a lot of other words that Jesus could have chosen to make his point. The word that Jesus uses here that is translated in our passage lustfully actually literally means over-desire. It's a word that is commonly used for greed. You might say that Jesus says if anyone looks at a woman greedily, and, of course, the context explains to us and informs to us that he's talking about the sexual dimension of the relationship. Greedily. It's a word that means over-desire, desiring something too much. In fact, it's a word that all throughout the New Testament is used for the concept of idolatry. 
being so fixated on something, it, it becomes a, a must-have to the extent that it becomes sort of a god to you. I have no life apart from you. I have no meaning apart from this. This must save me. These are the operations of the heart that Jesus is touching on. We think about this word choice of Jesus's, and I think we start to learn a couple things. First of all, Jesus isn't just talking about sexual attraction. Sexual desire in and of itself is not sinful. It's what you do with it. And it's with whom you do with it what you do with it. The Greek tense of the verb actually suggests what one scholar describes as the deliberate harboring of desire for an illicit relationship. It's not the attraction itself. It's the illicit and deliberate harboring of a desire for an out-of-bounds relationship. Jesus refers not to noticing a person's beauty, but to imbibing it, meditating on it, seeking to possess it, fondling it in our hearts. Secondly, we also realize by the use of this word that has this nuance of greed, what Jesus is saying is that lying at the heart of sexual lust is self-centeredness, a commitment to me, my satisfaction, my desire at the expense of you. Lust is treating sex like a consumer. Literally, that you sort of pay a price, whatever that might be, in order to get a product, and the consumer, the customer, is always right, and never done until they're satisfied. In fact, in most cases of lust, it is so about you that literally you're doing it while you're all alone. Right? Jesus is talking about the lust of the heart. This is stuff that is happening sort of behind closed doors, personally speaking. That's how self-centered it is. These incredible gifts, this, empower, this powerful form of connection, this spiritual bond of body and soul that was meant to be forged between two people within the covenant of marriage is now left dangling, sitting there, a person essentially loving themselves. Except that it's not love at all. It's consumption of another human being. It's what makes pornography and masturbation, the evils that they are, the destructive forces that they are, we'll talk about that more in a second, where in those cases you are literally so about yourself that you don't even have or feel you need another person. It's the way in which sexual fantasy always works because you are literally working with imaginary people. I mean, really think about it. They're, they're so imaginary almost always, especially if you're sitting in front of a computer or you're making up the best kind of imagination or fantasy that you can think of. If you ever actually ran into these men or women, they wouldn't give you the time of day. That's how imaginary this is. It's a total fakery. It's the fraudulence of the heart. Do you see, if you're giving in to lust, and especially if you're doing it habitually, you are at your core being 
terrifyingly selfish. And in fact, not just selfish, arrogant. Because at the heart of selfishness is the person that says, it is all about me. You all are all about me, and all these things and people belong to me. Do you hear the ugly meditations of the heart? Do you understand that in this well-known story of King David and Bathsheba in the Old Testament, that when David initiated this adulterous affair, perhaps the worst thing about it or the context that precipitated it was that David was sitting at home as a king alone. What's wrong with that? We're told in that story that David had sent his men into battle. One of those men in battle was Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. The kings of Israel were always supposed to be with their own men when fighting on the battlefield. Here was David suddenly becoming one like the kings of the world, sending out others to make sacrifices for his benefit and gain. Here was David taking on the identity now of an emperor. Here's David on the roof of his home looking out at his kingdom and seeing all these things which now he sees but as his own possessions. Even this woman, which he looks at and says, mine. All of us have this same heart. This heart of selfishness, no, this heart of arrogance, no, this heart of the megalomaniac, no, this heart of narcissism at work, crowning ourselves king with every lustful look. And don't you understand, if we really take this seriously, that's when we start to understand why it is that Jesus can move from that to hell. Which, for some of you, might just sound like this utterly incongruous or illogical place to go. But you got to understand, hell is a place of utter aloneness. Hell is a place where everyone is their own king. There are no friends in hell. There is no such thing as intimacy in hell. There is no such thing as community. C.S. Lewis, in his sort of parable about hell called The Great Divorce does an incredible job of picturing this in creative image form where he says hell is sort of a community that is always ever expanding into infinity outward and outward and outward because no one wants to be with each other. Everyone wants to be their own king and most especially over against God. Hell is a place where the last place you want to be is in the presence of God and the last thing you want to be doing is bowing your knee to God because you're the king. You see, Jesus is saying, for those who live their whole lives as lustful kings and queens will get what their hearts have been fondling all their lives. The horror and the destruction of being infinitely and eternally alone in judgment under the wrath of God as your own king. This greed and this self-centeredness, it is addictive, it is destructive, it dehumanizes other people, it dehumanizes 
yourself, which is precisely why Jesus gets so intensely practical here, where he gives these instructions about maintaining sexual purity. I mean, this maybe is the most jarring part of the entire passage. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown in hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. My goodness, what is going on here? Two things. Jesus is getting at two things. One, urgency. Urgency. He's calling for drastic measures. Let's be clear. Jesus is not literally commanding for people to start to maim themselves in this fashion. He is, however, using this intense figure of speech to say, how deadly serious are you about this thing that is destroying your soul and the lives of those around you? Theologian Sinclair Ferguson says about this passage, the drastic nature of the remedy is simply the index of the radical danger of the sin. We have this principle, of course, in foreign policy, foreign affairs, that we do not negotiate with terrorists, right? Christians, do you negotiate with the terrorists of sin and lust in your own heart? Do you let it be? Do you give it provision and place in your soul? Do you see the destruction that is happening before you, in you, to you? I mean, surveys and statistics show that the vast majority of young women and more and more also young women, I mean, young men and also increasingly young women not far behind them are terribly enslaved by pornography. It's epidemic in our lives, in our culture, in society, most especially because of the ease with which you have access to it. And you say, well, what's the harm that's done to that? Do you know that studies are beginning to demonstrate that the neurochemical ways in which pornography affects your mind almost mimics the way in which your brain reacts to illicit drugs? That literally you are creating new neural pathways in your mind because of the pornography that you are intaking and just to shut off the screen itself does not correct what's been done to your brain. These are just psychosomatic realities, the way our bodies, because our bodies aren't the worst part of it that's getting damaged, our bodies are simply illustrating what's actually happening in our souls. You say, well, okay, that's just me, but do you understand that over half of divorce cases, according to surveys, involve one part, one person in the relationship having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. You don't need a study to tell us, too, just the way in which pornography in this industry affects the way that people look at each other. The way in which young couples sometimes, upon getting married, struggle in their sexual intimacy because they fed on illicit images and unreality for so long. 
It affects your relationships. Jesus says, how urgent are you to take care of this? But secondly, he also gives us this intense imagery to remind us to take real, serious, practical steps. What Jesus was advocating, says John Stott, was not a literal, physical self-maiming, but a ruthless, moral self-denial. Not mutilation, but mortification, which is an old word that theologians used to use to describe the language we find in the Bible where we're called to put to death the nature of our sin, to fight to the death, to crucify the things that are at war within us. Such that if your eyes are leading you to sin, in other words, if where your downfall really is or, or by the things that you're seeing, then quote-unquote pluck out your eyes. And in other words, don't look and behave as if you actually had plucked out your eyes. Function almost like you've been blinded and could not see objects which used to cause you to sin. Or if your hand or foot causes you to sin because temptation comes that way, don't, don't do it, fight against it, so much so that you might start to behave as if you actually had cut off your hands and foot. Such that you couldn't even do it. That's how extreme your fighting needs to be because that's how dangerous the power of that downfall actually is. Do you understand that if we're taking Jesus' words seriously, that nearly all of us really should be taking drastic, serious measures to protect our souls and to protect the souls and lives around us, all of us should be giving something up, this sort of spiritual, proverbial self-maiming. There ought to be something in your life that you have said no to for the sake of preserving sexual health. And it actually sometimes will be good things, like certain places that maybe you could go to, but maybe you know are not good for you to go to, or certain things that you see, or certain even relationships, people that just push the weakest of weak buttons in your heart, and you know it, and why do you keep going back again and again? And Jesus says there ought to be in all of our lives something, even good things, that ought to be cut out every single one of us, everyone should be giving something up with a certain ferocious faithfulness. Because to obey this command of Jesus will involve for many of us, and for some of you maybe starting today, praise God, a certain cutting out, a certain cutting off. But you understand if lust is a problem at all, then we have to recognize, as Jesus teaches us to recognize, that it's ultimately a problem of the heart. And if it's a problem of the heart, then what you most need is a change of heart. What you most need are, yes, practical strategies 
And yes, a fierce will that's energized and enervated by love and joy. I want to do this out of love for God and love for other people. And yes, even love for myself, not wanting to destroy my humanity, my personhood, my soul. And yet ultimately, what needs to happen even for you to will yourself like that is a transformation of the heart. What it really takes is to see the way in which you, taking a look in the mirror, are constantly exalting yourself as king, looking at other people as though you own others, that they are possessions of yours that you can fondle in your heart and own as your own to do as you wish for your satisfaction alone, crowning yourself king and queen. Behold the true king who laid it all down. Behold the king who came riding in on a donkey as king and who rode into Jerusalem only five days later to turn around and head right to Calvary. Behold the king who because of love, not because you earned it, not because you deserve it, not because you even know how to begin where to be sorry for the lust and adultery of your heart, who took the initiative to come to be your servant, even your slave, debasing himself before you that he might save you. Jesus, who, as we're told in Philippians 2, in fact enjoyed equality with God and yet chose not to assert that equality for his own personal gain in self-indulgement. Who forewent lust of all kinds, not just the sexual sort, but all forms of narcissistic, megalomaniac living for myself and using people for my own satisfaction and gain, Jesus, who turned that inside out and upside down, who gave his life as a sacrifice, who gave and gave and gave and thought about you and gave himself to you and filled his mind and his heart for you and loved you and died for you and forgave you and everything about him was for you. The farthest thing from the heartbeat of the lust of the heart. So that when you begin to encounter him, then you start to know the freedom of a heart that maybe for the first time can look at another person, yes, a beautiful person, yes, an attractive person, but to look at them with genuine gospel love. Not to consume, but to serve because Jesus, your king, first served you. This is the story of Palm Sunday, the king who became a servant. This is the story of people who are recovering lust addicts, adulterers of the heart, kings and queens who become servants.
by the power of the one who has served you so. Let's pray and believe in his name. Jesus, we're asking that you would come and pierce our hearts and turn our hearts inside out by the power of your love and grace. Help us to look out onto others and learn to love and break us of the power of lust, self-love, self-service. Do this for your glory, for our freedom, for love of neighbor. Do this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing together.